Hey there, listeners. This is Justin with a quick note before today's episode. Spotify recently allowed users to start leaving reviews for podcasts, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would consider listening to the show on Spotify, leaving us a positive review. I don't even think you have to write anything in. You just get a star rating and that's it. But uh, if you're willing to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks and enjoy today's show. Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 436, How to Sell a Company with Jeff Arnold at Wrightshire. It's a great question, and it stirs up a deeply personal response, right? So I can tell you, um, in 1999, I had built a, my first firm up and was ready to, to sell, right? And I sold it, and it was very, very fortunate hillbilly from Kentucky, right? I'm in Tucson, I built this company. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's wonderful. But guess what? It turns out that I spiraled into a pretty deep depression. I, I couldn't get up. I couldn't enjoy the holidays with my kids and my wife. I was just uh, kept the curtains drawn tight in the room, lights off. I was depressed, man, because my entire identity, even though I was a father, even though I was a husband, even though I was a son, my entire identity was wrapped up in my company. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jeff. It was a connection through a mutual friend, and I took away a lot from this conversation. So first of all, Jeff works in the insurance industry, which is not an industry I knew a lot about before the interview, but I can see why he chose to spend 30 years of his career in this career path that he pursued after his time in the army. We do talk about selling companies in this interview, and part of that is relevant to my own career path in entrepreneurship, but I think that there's a lot there in terms of understanding how companies are valued, how to drive value, how to increase value of a company, how to defer benefits in selling a company versus finding a company that pays you a good salary from the start. We talk about approaching your career in 15-year increments of, uh, I love the breakdown he had there of three different chapters in one's career and what matters at those points. And we talk about identity, which is something that comes up a lot in this podcast when it comes to identity as a veteran. He talks about that as identity in a career path or even identity with a specific company. As always at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discuss in this conversation, including multiple books that uh, Jeff mentions, as well as 425 other episodes just like this one, all offered for free. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Jeff. Well, joining me today in Tucson, Arizona, where he first moved after he transitioned from the military back in, uh, I believe, 1986, my guest is Jeff Arnold. Jeff, welcome to Be On The Uniform. Hey, Justin. Thank you so much, man. Listen, I have been excited ever since we got this on the calendar. So uh, we're going to have some fun today. Me too. Me too. Let me give our listeners just a quick abbreviated bio on Jeff. He is an authority in the insurance industry with over 30 years of experience managing deals ranging from six figures to a hundred million plus. He currently serves as the president of Rightshire, where he has distilled the zeal for discipline he learned in the army into profitable joint ventures. He's passionate about entrepreneurship, mergers and acquisitions, and has also written multiple best-selling books. So Jeff, maybe to start things off. You're walking down the street in Tucson. You run into a fellow army veteran and they're like, man, Jeff, what do you do for a living? How do you explain that? Yeah, well, it's been a long journey, right? If they were asking for advice, I would say simply 
follow your passion, right? I mean, the money, like everyone tells you, the dollars will flow, the income will show up, but find something that you're passionate about. You know, quite literally, you would do for free because if you start a business, that's what you're going to do for a while, right? Mm -hmm. Get into something that puts a fire in your belly and makes you want to wake up, uh, feet hit the floor every morning, whether you get paid or not. And so the first thing I would say, is, is those words, right? Find something that just engages your spirit, your mind, your soul, and your body and go after it. The, the next place is, um, look, it is not the simplest of transitions from military to corporate life, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh, and I was in it for a very short time, unlike some people have been in it for decades and a, an entire career. There are some fundamental shifts in your mentality and your workflow that have to change. And there's not the the discipline and the rigidity and the predictability of your daily routine that you've come to know, a different space in the corporate world exists that you're just going to have to navigate through it through trial and error. So that'd be the number one thing, right? Is that you would somehow stereotype your civilian world with the same comfort and familiarity you have in the, um, in the military. You know, you talked about finding something that you love and that you're passionate about. And I hear 30 years of experience in the insurance industry. It's not, it's not an industry a lot of people might immediately think about. What was the starting point for your entry into that space? Like, how did you end up in the insurance industry? Yeah, this is a, I'll try to be brief, Justin, but it's kind of a funny story, really, right? If your listeners have a, a couple moments, I will give them the background. So I am, literally 14 years old. I live in Western Kentucky and my family is all preachers or farmers, right? That's that's it, right? There's rumors that there might have been some moonshiners, but the story we're telling is preachers and farmers. So I'm, I'm kind of both, right? My daddy, his daddy, his daddy are, are all preachers and uh, we're farming too. And so back to the story, I'm standing on a hay bale at 14 years old with my friend Chuck working in the tobacco in hay fields. Up drives this guy in a four-door Buick with the windows up. It's important because that means he had air conditioning, right? (laughs) He steps out in this nice, crisp, starched white shirt. And I remember asking my friend Chuck, hey, what's that guy do? And he said, insurance or something like that, right? So uh, fast forward, eight, nine, 10 years, I forget exactly, well, 22, 23, so eight or nine years, I'm out of the military. And I uh, was doing some stage work. I loved performing theater and comedy. I was doing some stage work, but wasn't successful at it. So I answered a job, as cliche as it sounds, for insurance salesman wanted. Harkening me back somehow to that time of standing on a hay bale. I'm like, I think you can make a living at that. And quite honestly, within weeks, I was hooked. I couldn't digest enough about this industry of insurance, which is really selling legal contracts and transferring risk from either yourself to a company for a few dollars or to a group of people for uh, sharing some risk pools. So a lot of sophisticated financial transactions wrapped up in legal contracts. Couldn't learn enough. Still learning every day. And so um, basically the short answer to your story is somehow as a young man standing on a hay bale, Mm. it was implanted in me that there's a living to be made in insurance. And uh, 31 years later, yeah, it's, it's been very good for my family and myself. It's wild to think about these little moments that have such a big impact. Cause like, I'm just picturing myself as a 14 year old. Like I didn't know of that many successful people. I didn't know that many career paths. But when you see something like that, you're like, oh, that person achieved success. And it has to do with something I never heard of before. It's wild to think about 
the impact that can have on your your own journey. Could you maybe to set the stage for our dis, our following discussion? Um, I know that you're president of Rightshore. What would you? How would you explain that to a layperson? What does Rightshore do? Yeah, so we are uh, in the insurance vertical, right? But we're mostly a tech-forward firm. And so what does that mean? Everyone uses the word tech these days. Is Our platform is really about creating the end of insurance shopping. So basically what happens, no matter who you're insured with, one thing is pretty consistent. Over a few years, your rates are going to do one thing. Go up, right? They're always going to increase. It's a myth, fallacy, uh, a disbelief or unbelief that it should always go down or that your rates are going to go up. It just doesn't happen. It costs more to fix cars, jewelry settle- jury settlements are higher, and so it goes up. Basically, our platform onboards policyholders and says, we'll do it for you. And then we have some uh, proprietary technology called discount discovery technology, where we locate every discount provided by every insurance company in the 42 states we're in. Now, if this were a shareholder meeting, I would give you a thousand more words, but basically (laughs) we leverage technology, artificial intelligence, and some uh, proprietary um, software platform to help people save money on uh, all things insurance. We insure everything from pets to jets and everything in between. You know what I love, what I'm imagining kind of helps you be passionate about this space. I'm imagining you're, um, one, you're helping people save money. You're helping them understand something that to me feels very complex, like insurance to me is intimidating. And then I'm imagining it's it's pretty in, in uh, energizing to know that you're having such a huge impact on people. Because, you know, when I think about insurance, it's like a decision I make once and then when I need it, it really is something that's important to me and my family. And so I imagine it feels great to have that impact on people of being able to give them the support they need at this time in their life when they really need it, whether it's their pet or jet or whatever it might be that you're helping them insure. Yeah, agreed. You know, uh, not to throw my book into this, but in my book, The Art of Insurance Steel, we talk about changing the consumer mindset because here's what's pervasive in, in everyone's mindset. Hey, look, insurance is boring. It's a needed thing. And all people associate with it is it's expensive, right? And so our process is, and the, the, the reason I think the book was so successful, it said, stop, just think for a moment. Instead of a siloed approach to all your insurance, which most consumers do, I got to save on my auto, maybe I bundle my home in auto and it's safe. But I would submit to you and your listeners, if you systematically aggregate, consolidate, think about how much money you're going to spend on all of your insurances throughout your lifetime, it is a significant amount of your income, right? And so if you just think about your health insurance, your life insurance, your auto, home, boat, motorcycle, RV, disability, all of that over the period of your life is hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? It is a staggering amount of money. And so what we teach people is instead of just, you know, going down one little uh, rabbit hole of let me save five or 10% of my auto insurance, think holistically, systematically about an insurance platform or an insurance management system that can consolidate all of those and try to save you the most overall, instead of just you having to shop for it uh, over and over again. So that's the exciting part really is, is watching that, that uh, transfer of knowledge happen and people start thinking holistically and systematically, like I said, about all of their insurance instead of just siloing it. You know, I got to get a better deal on my RV insurance or whatever. So I challenge your listeners to do this just on the back of a napkin or post-it note. Consolidate all your insurance premiums real quick for a year and then scratch your head and be like, oh my God, it's an insane amount of money. So it's a great exercise. 
It's crazy because when you say, I, I would have never thought of that. And then when you when you say it like that, I'm like, oh yeah, it is actually when you couple together all the different insurances that my family pays for, my company pays for, it actually is a it is a staggering amount of money. And it's it is kind of crazy to think that you know we'll look at our rent, we'll look at all our, our mortgage, all our you know kind of fixed expenses, but like it it feels like we rarely look at that as like how do we make the most of this or how do we make the most of this resource. So I think that's a great reminder for people. One of the topics that you and I chatted with about when we were trading emails was how to develop an exit strategy. And I want to give you space to talk about that. It's you know it's relevant to to me as an entrepreneur. I think it's relevant to our audience, but I'm also just kind of curious the background on why that's a topic that's that's important to you. Perfect. Thank you so much for that question, Justin. I love that because I, uh, being in the space we're in, I've been fortunate to acquire um, 42 different insurance firms and wow. sold two different insurance companies. And I don't say that as a bragging point, but just to say that I've been several people's exit strategies, right? And so it's helped me over the years kind of understand and define mine, right? So look, I'm 55 years old. I love what I do. I wake up every day and can't wait to get to work and hate to quit at eight or nine o'clock at night to go to bed. So I just love this. Um, but at some point, right, I have to slow down or exit or cash out, whatever every entrepreneur wants to do, right? At some point, all the sweat equity you've invested, all of this you want to cash out. And that's an exit strategy. And it may be just selling shares in your company. So you have shareholders, that's a partial exit for you. So you've got a secondary market to access capital or yourself and your, your personal life. It may be sell a portion of your company. It may be sell all of your company. It could be give it to your employees as an ES, in an ESOP, not give it, but you know transition it to your employees in an ESOP. Either way, it's part of how you take the income that you've created all these years with that sweat equity, like we talked about, and cash that out. Again, I'm in nowhere near ready to exit, but I do have just a, a folder and exit, quite frankly, in my inbox and in my email that has exit options. Like, what are you thinking about? Five, 10, 15 years? Because you need to study what the, the multiple is of firms your size. Is it on EBITDA? Is it on uh, revenue? Is it on you know net income? How are firms like yours evaluated? And when it's at a peak, that's when you want to start thinking about it. And I'll tell you one thing that I've learned very, very recently over the last two or three years is um, several good friends. Most of them in the medical field have medical practices and uh, some uh, CPA and financial firm practices have this vision that their children are going to take over or that uh, their other partner is going to buy. And three uh, folks really close to me have realized that that didn't pan out. The children, they might have sent them through school and they decide they want to do something different. So that transition is lost or their partners have either passed away prematurely or decided that they're going to retire too. And so that exit strategy becomes interrupted. And so my one big takeaway for your listeners would be, you need to be curating a multiple or in a multitude of exit strategies because the one that you're planning on might not work out. And you don't want to, you know, you spend a lot of time building your baby and, and curating your, your company. You, you don't want just one exit option. You, you want several to be able to think about because you might pull the ripcord early. You might get really close to the ground and have to put your finger right to land. So just think of... Um, giving several alternatives and avenues. This is great. I want to double click on this because I find it fascinating. And, and for listeners, just full disclosure, I sold one company and I'm in the midst of selling two companies. So this is very, very top of mind for me. Um, I want to put it in lens that we usually talk about on the show, which is transitioning out of the military into the civilian workforce. And in 425 episodes, there's probably been at least 25 to 50 people that I've interviewed where they never intended to leave the military 
they want to do a 20 or 30 year career and they were injured or something changed and that transition was forced on them. And so I'm almost hearing you, Jeff, as you say this, I'm almost hearing it through that lens of as you build a company, like you never know, you may want to just grow this company for 20 years, but you never know what changes in your life or your partnership or the company or the industry. And so I'm viewing it through this lens of like, oh yeah, you always have to be thinking about what's your out. You always have to be thinking about how you might leave. And one thing I just wanted to break down for our listeners, Jeff had mentioned, you know, you can sell a company, you want to understand how the company is valued. You know, just one simple example is some industries might say, okay, we're going to look at the annual revenue that you did. And it's a five to seven X multiple, meaning that if you made a million dollars in this year, we're going to say your company is valued at five to $7 million. That's a very simple breakdown, but there's so many different ways to look at this. And so one thing that I'm appreciative about what you said, Jeff, is that I'm guessing if you really understand how your industry values your type of company, you almost know what to optimize for. Like if they really value revenue, then I really want to drive up revenue. But if they really value profit, I want to be as profitable as possible. And so understanding the way that others are going to view you allows you to focus on the right thing to grow. And I'm curious, Jeff, like if you have thoughts around like as you've built, you know, been you've been very successful as an entrepreneur, as you grow an organization, is it usually through the lens of like that exit plan of like, let me grow to this? Or are you growing based on what you feel is right? Or I, I don't know if that question makes sense, but I'm kind of curious, like what, what you focus on as you're building these organizations. It's, it's a great question and it stirs up a deeply personal response, right? So I can tell you um, in 1999, I had built a, my first firm up and was ready to, to sell, right? And I sold it and it was very, very fortunate hillbilly from Kentucky, right? I'm in Tucson, I built this company. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's wonderful. But guess what? It turns out that I spiraled into a pretty deep depression, right? And I talk about it in another book, The Art of the Insurance Deal. I, I couldn't get up. I couldn't enjoy the holidays with my kids and my wife. I was just uh, kept the curtains drawn tight and the room lights off. I was depressed, man, because my entire identity, even though I was a father, even though I was a husband, even though I was a son, my entire identity was wrapped up in my company. Right. And so that was it was a painful, depressing moment for me. And it's applicable to what you said, because if it's your first exit, you may experience those same emotional behaviors. Right. I mean, it was it was quite difficult. And then with respect to the second part of your question, you know, what I'm doing now, since I've gone through that and I've bought and sold some more and exited in 2007 and in 2012 is I'm really just building a team, right? Like trying to pour back into other people's lives. Um, I heard it said somewhere that, you know, the first 15 years, you're just learning. Second 15 to 20 years, you're aggregating and gathering and increasing your wealth. And then the last 10 or 15, it's giving back. I feel like that's where I'm at now. I'm trying to transfer knowledge into uh, our young executives or our new leaders coming in. And so my, my focus is on, I will have to exit one time just to aggregate the, the financial gain that I'm, that I'm building, right? I'm going to have to do that. But it's really about how do I make sure that the failures I've encountered, which are 
great many more than the successes, right? Um, that I can pass those along and people can stand on my shoulders, just like I was fortunate to stand on the shoulders of uh, two very wonderful mentors that that catapulted me and lifted me above everyone else because, because of their failures that I learned through. So again, a lot of words there, but be very careful of your first exit because it is going to be deeply emotional, probably more than you realize, right? Mm-hmm. Money is only one portion of it. There, there's so much more wrapped into it. And then as you continue to build now, start thinking about, you know, how that exit works, not just economically, but how are you going to develop your new identity? That's great. uh, Two things I want to point out for listeners. One is this piece around identity, which I'm really glad you're speaking to. On the show, we often talk about that reorientation of identity as someone leaves the military and then has to figure out who they are out of the uniform. And what you're talking about with you're talking about a specific use case of, of selling a company that you built and was a huge part of your identity and the depression that can follow. And I would say for listeners, that very likely is true of any career path too. Even if you're not an entrepreneur, you could be you know, a marketing person and then your career changes and you may not realize it, but a lot of your identity is wrapped up around that. So I think there's so much wisdom in what Jeff is saying of like, the constant rediscovering of our identity apart from what we do for a living can be really hard. The second thing is I really like that, you know, I probably misquote it, but that stat I, I view it as like three chapters, the first 15 years of your career, second 15 years and third 15 years is now giving back. That's a beautiful way to look at one's career and, and how your values change over time. One follow on question that I had, and I imagine this maybe has changed in the, the you know multiple companies you've sold based on, your financial position and where you at in life. But how do you balance the thought of of maximizing wealth in the month to month of like taking care of yourself and your family versus deferring that financial gain for the eventual outcome? And and part of not to taint your answer, but part of the the lens through which I'm viewing this is my very first company where I was like not paying myself, not taking care of myself financially. And then the company was a failure. And I was like betting everything on this exit that never came. So I'm curious, like, how do you balance that? Like the the immediate gratification versus this delayed gratification of an exit with a company? Yeah, it's a great, uh, great question. And first of all, you know this as well as I do. And, and everyone needs to hear this. Listen, if you think that you're going to just walk into the title of entrepreneur and not suffer delayed gratification, you're fooling yourself, right? There is no business that has just started off. And there is, please message me because I also want to partake in that business model. (laughs) There are months, years, sometimes a very long time of delayed gratification. And yeah, you're working for free. And guess what? You're working for a lunatic too, right? So (laughs) it's just, uh, it's just part of it. So the title entrepreneurship isn't uh, just given to anyone. It, it is really earned through a lot of uh, sweat, blood, and tears with no pay. And then so at some point, like for me, just to get personal again, the first several years, of course, it was nothing, right? It's things kind of pivoted when I had a child to care for, right? And a spouse, it's, uh, you know, we, we decided, well, we didn't decide. She said, I'm working at home. I'm staying at home, figure it out, right? Yeah. So now I had to figure that out. Um, and so uh, that ratchets up the stress and it ratchets up the critical decision-making process again. And so you've got to do a little more. Whatever uh, it is that you have to provide for your family at home, right? That's why we're doing this, right? So you, you got to figure it out. But it is not going to be it is very rare indeed that you're going to equate to your same level of income 
that you have now the moment you start a new business, right? There is a dip, there is a sacrifice, there is a loss of income in, in most people's lives. I'm not, I'm not aware of any that, that don't have that. That's great. And I think, I think that could be extended to the transition from the military where like most of the time people leave the military and they need to get step back and pay because they're learning a new skill set. They're like, they're in some ways investing in their toolkit and their resume and their career path and all of those things. So it is a temporary step back of deferred gratification. And I'm wondering about the, you know, you when another topic that we had talked about was managing rapid growth for a sustainable future. And it almost feels like that's the next step, which is like you you kind of start something, you're pouring yourself into it. It's a grind. And then at some point, if, if things go well, it starts to scale. It starts to be more than just you. And I, I really like this thought of how to proactively think ahead of like when the tsunami hits, if it hits, how do you make sure it doesn't crush you? How do you make sure you can take advantage of that and grow? So I'd love to hear any advice you have there. A lot of companies fail because they don't have the ability to scale, right? If you can't scale, you're going to fail. Certainly in my own experiences, uh, early companies, they weren't as successful because I failed to get out of the way and understand that that scalability uh, piece, right? Um, or the business model canvas changes that need to happen organizationally to allow that growth to scale, right? I think everyone's got something they, they could refer to or turn to that the message just hit them at the right time. And two of them were for me was that totally transitioned how we do business, right? And it was Michael Gerber's book, uh, The E-Myth, Why Small Businesses Don't Work and What to Do About It. I've got it on my shelf and I love love that. I'm glad you're you're calling this book out. It's fantastic. And I uh, I even went a little further there. And for three years, every Thursday, uh, Michael Gerber used to have a consulting firm. And every Thursday, three years for one hour on Thursday, I sat at his feet and then later some um, some of his executives' feet to wow. probably you know, coach you, right? At, at, at an expense for me that was greater than, than college, but it was worth every cent that one hour. And so just to get challenged. And so I would recommend coaching, right? Or find that book that, that changes your mindset. And then another one, again, whatever book it is to you speaks, but the, the other one for me was good to great. If you are going to try to take on Mount Everest, you have to make sure you carry plenty of canisters of oxygen, right? Because at the top, you're going to need it most. The same is true in your company as it relates to cash. You must figure out how to aggregate cash, how to control cash, how money moves through your organization, how it leaves, how it comes in. And you have to be sophisticated at managing cash throughout your organization. And those are two things that have helped to scale. So whatever it is for you, you know, most entrepreneurs are really deep readers, average readers, right? They can't get enough. And those are just two books that uh, spoke to me. Yours could be two different books, but, but keep reading. Yeah, I love that plug for both uh, reading and the coaching. And I'm jealous that you were able to work with Michael Gerber uh, directly. That's that's pretty unreal. What about you know another topic that we had talked about was creating lasting trust in the customer journey. And and maybe if you could start by some of our listeners who are on Active Duty, they might not have even heard this phrase customer journey before. And it's not you know for listeners, it's not restricted to entrepreneurship. This is something that Fortune you know 50 companies think about as the customer journey. But could you explain a little bit about what the customer journey is, and then how you go about creating that lasting trust? Yeah. And so basically, I think the easy summary, right, is to understand that, put it on yourself, before you buy something, anything, there exists two emotions, right? Or two thought processes, two ideologies, trust versus suspicion, right? Mm. So anything you buy, in my space, it's insurance. So guess what? You have more suspicion than trust in insurance companies. It's founded, right? So, yeah. Yeah. so In our customer journey, 
we must continually try to build that trust, erode, modify, reduce that suspicion, right? And that is through white papers, it's through blogs, it's through social media that says, look how much we give back to the community, how we support the end of human trafficking and homeless children and and veterans and give veterans preferential uh, applicant status, right? And so removes the suspicion elevates the trust, right? And it's tougher to do in our space, again, because insurance companies don't have that high level of trust because people hear bad stories. Coincidentally, I know most insurance company CEOs are the top 30 of the top 50, and and they're all very trustworthy. It's just in our business, like anything else, you get what you pay for. And so when you start stripping away coverage to save money, the coverage isn't there, claims time. Um, But let's not bore you with all insurance stuff. Let's just take a new restaurant that opens up in your town. If you've ever had food poisoning, you're very aware sometimes, uh, very weary sometimes of new restaurants, right? That their uh, suspicion has to be modified by trust. And so the more you see them in your community or the more you drive by that, the more cars you see in the parking lot, the longer you see the the drive-through line, the more trust you gain. And so that is all part of the customer journey, right? So we all have these little antenna on the top of our heads that are saying, do I trust you? Do I want to give you my money? Or should I not eat there? Or should I not buy there? Or this podcast, is there anything valuable for me there? Does it deliver content that that is worthy of my time, right? Because it's the time investment. And then the more, so you've done hundreds, right? Way more than most, right? You're a leader in this space. The trust is out there farther in front of them than the suspicion. And so all of that can be wrapped up in this pretty bow called the customer journey. And it's thinking about how will the customer interact with my podcast, with my drive-through, with my legal contracts, and how can we implement more trust in that journey? That's great. And it's, uh, you know, one thing I'll call it for listeners is one of the advantage of of having served in the military is like that is a huge credibility booster. I feel like people, for the most part, tend to trust people who served in the military. And that can be a huge asset in whatever you do in your career. But I think that that description really makes it clear. Like I like the restaurant example. It is like whether we realize it or not, like we, we I like that image too. We have these little trust antennas on our heads and we're constantly evaluating, can I trust this person? And so finding ways for your business, your career, your, yourself to say like, look, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of bad actors and I'm actually trustworthy or my organization is trustworthy and how you build that really can make or break the company's success. So I think that's a, a really great example. I know we're towards the end of our time, but I always like to leave the last question open-ended, which is, you know, I asked some specific questions today. I'm sure there's things I didn't ask about. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to make sure you leave listeners with before we wrap up? You know, I, I appreciate that last uh, edit option. I want to just say thank you uh, to you listeners, A, for serving at great sacrifice. You certainly have probably known or lost some friends on this journey. So A, thank you. Uh, and if everyone doesn't tell you thank you enough, thank you again, because um, certainly your journey in the military has caused sacrifice. You've learned a lot and the country's given back to you, but you've also sacrificed a lot. So thank you so very much. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jeff, I appreciate your advice today. And for listeners, um, I'll include in the show notes at beyondtheuniform.org a link to Rightshore. I'll include links to uh, Jeff's book, The Art of the Insurance Deal, and his other books as well, so you can check them out. But I really appreciate your time and advice today. Thanks so much. I I had an absolute blast. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. 
We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.